This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We are facing an increasing crisis of teen and youth suicide in America, and it is especially affecting young girls. Today's episode is a difficult one. Kendra Fisher, a former elite ice hockey player and mental health activist and advocate, helps me dig into the roots of the problem and what we can do to turn it around. Years ago, when faced with the opportunity to realize her dream of goaltending for Team Canada, Kendra was diagnosed with severe anxiety disorder coupled with severe panic attacks, depression, and agoraphobia, forcing her to leave the national program in order to seek help to learn how to live with what had become a crippling disease. She now dedicates her life to helping young people get help for their mental illnesses. We turn now to a nationwide tragedy, suicide. A new report from the Centers for Disease Control says it is growing rapidly The suicide rate among young people has been on the rise for more than a decade. But the nation's suicide rate, rate is at its world. highest point since the 1986. The 14-year-old and her 12-year-old accomplice allegedly harassed Cedric Taunts in included, you should drink bleach and die. No one likes you. And you should go kill yourself. Sedwick jumped off a tower near her home after writing friends. Nine-year-old Mackenzie Adams took her own life last week. Her mother says the fourth grader was the target of constant racial taunts and name-calling. I was diagnosed with mental illness, and I had no idea where to go. So I was actually out at a Team Canada camp in, in Calgary, and leading up to it in the weeks before, I'd been to the doctors, I'd been to the hospitals, I'd been in the emergency room. I had no idea what was wrong with me. I felt like I was having a heart attack. I felt like I was going to faint. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't swallow. Um, and, and everybody told me I was fine. I love hockey and I love everything it's given me. But my hockey career also, it, it would have had a shelf life. And now I'm in this position where I've learned so much about myself and I've met so many incredible people because of the journey I've been on. Um, and hopefully, I mean, I can be a part of something that, you know, it might stop somebody else I'm Kendra Fisher, and I'm fighting for the lives of those living with mental illness. Sorry, not sorry. So, I mean, we've got a tough topic today. But really, before we dive in, I'd love for you to give my listeners a bit of information about your background and how did mental health, especially in girls, become one of your causes? My background is hockey. I mean, everything about my background is hockey. I... Grew up like so many Canadians, just really wanting to have that red and white jersey that had my name on the back. And I wanted to play for Team Canada. I wanted to go to the Olympics. And everything in my life through my teens really suggested I was going to be successful in that. I was a carded member of Team Canada's national hockey program. And sometime after high school, I just got to a place where symptomatically and and not knowing what it was without a diagnosis, I was off. I just, I felt sick all the time. I felt like I was making trips to the emergency room constantly, feeling like I was having a heart attack, feeling like I couldn't breathe. And it got to a place where, unfortunately, the perfect storm kind of hit when I was out at my tryouts for Team Canada in 99. And I was out at the camp and I just, I couldn't hide it anymore. I couldn't hide the battle that I was having every single day. Um, I grew up in in the greatest, you know, possible situation. I had a great family. I had great friends. I was in a small town. 
Um, and I had a dream, and my dream was I wanted to play for Team Canada. Uh, I wanted to play in the Olympics. That was, that was what I knew, and that was everything I worked for. And I was well on my way to that. I went to the coaches, and I tried to explain to them what was going on, and quite honestly, their response to me was, would it help any to know I'd already made the team? They knew they wanted to select me that year, and I was finally going to get that chance to live my dream. And it's obviously been one of the hugest moments of my life, but not for anything I want to remember, because the answer was no. At that point, what I eventually learned was a severe panic disorder and agoraphobia, OCD, clinical depression had literally taken over my life. And I spent the next five years unable to leave my apartment, barely participating in my diagnosis, just kind of scraping by and doing the bare minimum to survive. And after five years, I realized I just didn't see the point anymore. And at that point, I knew I had to make a decision. And somehow I found it in me to start fighting. And I learned everything I could about mental illness and the system and how it works and what supports are available. And I really kind of became at the risk of, of sounding unhealthy, obsessed with my own recovery. And mm. I got to a place where I live very comfortably with my diagnosis. It doesn't mean it's gone. I live with it every day. But now I live with it as a professional speaker and travel the world helping others learn how to cope and manage. I also work as a firefighter. I, I managed to go back and play for Team Canada's inline hockey team. And it's really just kind of become a journey that I'm so passionate about because I understand how hopeless it feels. But more importantly, I understand how hard it is to find hope and to find real help and support and understanding about mental illness. And I just I want to be a part of that narrative. Does mental illness run in your family? Yes. Yes and no. I mean, I've always kind of done this whole why did it happen to me? And I think we always look for the answers because if we could find the answers, we can fix the problem. Certainly on my on my dad's side of the family, there's some depression, but it wasn't so prevalent that I ever knew about it. It wasn't something that I was ever made aware of. It didn't show itself to me until I actually understood what I was dealing with. And you said that you're now living comfortably with your mental illness. What does that mean? I'm fully functioning. It doesn't affect my day-to-day -day life in a way it did in the way it did kind of earlier on in my diagnosis. I got to a place where I just have an incredible system of support set up around me and I have all of my tools and strategies in place and I'm very quick to identify when I'm not doing well. And I've also given others the permission to hold me accountable when they see I'm not doing well. Mm. And in doing so, it allows me to really react quickly. And now, I mean, I would challenge that on my worst days of anxiety, on my worst days of panic, on my worst days of depression, doesn't affect me any longer than it would affect somebody getting a bad cold or the, you know, the stomach flu. It's It's a couple of days of really having to focus on what's brought me back to that place and making sure that I am doing all of the things that I know keep me healthy. And, and usually I can rectify it just by changing those behaviors. I suffer from generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. But I think it's so hard that when we're in the middle of it to do the things that we know will make us feel better. Right. Exactly. Like I know that going out and being in my garden or digging in the dirt or taking a hike or taking a yoga class, I know that these are the things that will make me feel better. And yet it's so hard to break out of it. Do you have any advice for me? Yeah, absolutely. With love and affection, not as in, <laughs> not in an onerous way. But I think that we forget to practice the things that keep us healthy when we're doing well. Mm. We get to this place where we let life kind of take over and that, you know, that pace of just going. And when we're good, we don't feel the need to necessarily revert back to that self-care and those things that we know keep us healthy. I feel like so many people only practice crisis response. And I think that it's time that people learn education and prevention are really the way to manage things. Crisis yeah. response is really you know, you're too far already. Well, and I think that for generations, we were told, buck up. And so yeah, yeah. a lot of us are still trying to figure out exactly like that line between actually bucking up and continuing with your life and 
Also acknowledging, wait, this is hard. My brain has a cold right now. And real. Oh, it's so real. Yeah. And it manifests itself in real physical ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always challenged that. I mean, the bottom line is, is you could sit there and look at me and say, oh, you're just having a panic attack. And to somebody who has no comprehension of what that feels like, it's kind of like dumbing down the situation. It's kind of like saying... Well, you're not dying. It's not like you're actually having a heart attack. It's not like it's actually anything horribly wrong. But I would challenge that I've never felt anything as challenging or painful or heartbreaking in any physical ailment or injury I've ever had. And I assure you, as an athlete, I've had my fair share. But it's just it's this acceptance to kind of be kind to yourself in those moments and stop trying to validate it. And I think that's one of the biggest struggles that I have found kind of living this journey out loud is I spend a lot of time making it okay for others. I find I spend a lot of time having to explain what I'm going through to others so that they're comfortable with what I'm going through, Right, which is an irony in itself. But I, I accept that because at least if they're willing to listen, then that means they're willing to be educated. And you never know what people are going to take from it for themselves. Exactly. You never know what resonates, right? You never know exactly what part of your journey, your story, is going to make sense to somebody else. You had your own set of circumstances that are very different than what most kids face. But I'm wondering, are there any commonalities between you and the young women who are suffering today? What do you see there? I think my circumstances allow me to understand with kind of a very unique perspective exactly what some of the issues are. And it's almost the absence of my circumstances that make it so obvious. I wasn't diagnosed till my late teens, but knowing now what I know about anxiety and panic and depression, you could have diagnosed me when I was five. I mean, this has been a lifelong battle. This wasn't something that just showed up in my teenage years. It just wasn't identified. And quite frankly, when I When I go back and consider why that is, after high school, I got into a car accident and I hurt my back. And it was kind of the first time in my life that I wasn't active every day. I wasn't out with my friends. I was kind of laid up a bit. And all of the sudden, outside of psychology and outside of medication, the routine that had made it possible for me to manage my day-to-day life up until then was gone. I wasn't being social. I was not being physically active. I wasn't sleeping well. And just kind of, I look at... Just the perfect storm. Yeah. And I kind of look at kids today and I mean, those things are missing. Those things are gone from their lives as well. So I'm not surprised that it's manifesting so much younger and so prevalently because it's just, you know, we've we've eliminated a lot of what used to be a normal routine for a child and we've replaced it with this chaotic, overindulgent, extremely busy schedule that is inundated with information that even we find it difficult to manage and we're expecting them to with an undeveloped brain and no guidance and support. There wasn't like a lot of people paying attention to me when I was younger because I seemed to be doing really well. Claire Messina was doing so well she was in college at an age when most kids are still in high school. But the stress of that achievement started to weigh heavy on her psyche. It culminated during my second year of college when I was 16 and I finally had like that final straw that broke the camel's back. The shame of getting a failing grade drove her to attempt suicide. How anybody's getting through childhood and their teenage years without being affected is, yeah, that would be more shocking. And when we look at suicide rates over the last few decades, it looks mm-hmm. like they were steadily declining, I don't know, for maybe about 15 years, and then they started rising again. Since the year 2000, the suicide rate for teens is up 28%, with an average of five deaths a day. The suicide rate for girls and young women ages 15 to 19 has reached a 40-year high. The rise in rates were particularly alarming among some age groups. While the numbers are still smaller among children, the suicide rate was up sharply among 10 to 14-year-old girls, tripling in the past 15 years. It also rose steeply among middle-aged Americans, 63% higher for middle-aged women, 43% higher for middle-aged
middle-aged men. What do you think changed? Do you think it's social media? I was like, all of these opinions don't make me very popular, depending on the age group. But social media, screen time, just daily routine, lack of communication development. So to break it down a little bit more, first off, social media, I mean, quite frankly, the brain doesn't stop developing until you're 25. You know, if we go into the biology of it, and I'm not going to take it much further than that because I certainly am not a science major, but I understand enough to know that an underdeveloped brain does not have the ability to problem solve or process emotion the same way as a developed brain. So if you think about the inundation of information that kids are getting just by having access, it's phenomenal. They are being exposed to more information, more imagery, more influencers than anything we could have ever imagined. And, you know, when you look at social media, there's just no disconnect anymore. And at the same time, this whole notion of being connected is creating a disconnect because we now validate our worth based on how many likes we're getting and how many shares. You know, I speak in schools and I'll have kids tell me, yeah, I was suicidal last year and I put online that I was going to kill myself and I got 87 likes. And I've Mm. never gotten so many likes, so I decided not to do it. Mm. And I just sit there and I think about that on so many levels and think, how absolutely messy is that? And it's just this kind of constant attachment to being judged and being validated and being done so by things that have no relative meaning. Like, it's just, you know, we have kids who are judging their worth by absolutely meaningless means. So their ability to see themselves and value themselves is just disappearing. And then on top of that, you look at some of the negative imagery and some of the negative influences that they find online, and nobody's around to explain it to them. Nobody's around to walk through with them. And I'll, I'll use 13 Reasons Why as an example. So I do a lot of speaking in schools. And Right away, 13 Reasons Why came out, and it was this cry for, you know, how do we shut this down? School districts across the country are now sending letters home about the new show. It's called 13 Reasons Why. It's a fictional story. It's about a 17-year-old girl who takes her own life. The themes are graphic and intense. Netflix says that it is intended for mature audiences because of its explicit and disturbing content. And that is a a warning that we now share with you, too. Teachers didn't want it in the schools. Boards didn't want it in the school. Superintendents were sending letters home to parents basically saying, here's how to deal with it with your kids. And number one on that list was tell them it's not real. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I've watched it. I do my diligence. Anything that the kids might ask me about, I make sure that I've at least taken the time to understand it. And, you know, here you have this amazing pop culture tool that every kid is exposing themselves to, whether or not their parents want them to, they find a way. And they can't talk about it. I mean, teachers and guidance counselors were literally being instructed to not have these conversations with them. Right. And I'm sitting there thinking, they have questions. And people who may never feel safe to approach this topic because of something they're feeling internally have an opportunity to blindly have this conversation hypothetically based on a TV show and get valuable information back. But I also think that that goes to the culture of, you know, the headline culture where there's no nuance anymore, right? We just Mm -hmm. look at the headline and we judge what's in the article based on that headline. And I think the same thing is true for art right now. And nobody does the work of discovering the nuance. No, and there's also the fear, right? There's also the whole fear-based culture, which is if I don't expose my children to this, if I don't acknowledge it, then it doesn't exist and it's not a problem. And I mean, I speak to kids as young as grade four, and I've had kids in grade four literally just criticize me for not speaking to their kids in grade one and two because they need to hear my story. And this is a time where... It's not unheard of for a five-year-old to attempt suicide. I mean, how that doesn't get people's attention is beyond me. And there's so many reasons for it. But, you know, it just, it, it goes back to the fear of, well, if we don't talk to them about it, then they won't have any ideas in their head. And if they don't have the ideas in their head, it won't happen. My argument is don't ask me not to use the word suicide with your kids because they don't understand it. And if somebody doesn't explain it to them, they're never going to. A five-year-old who who takes their life, they don't understand that they're not going to be there tomorrow. Yeah. They understand that it's an act that can be committed to end sadness. Well, 
you know, everything in the underdeveloped brain before 25 is based on impulse control. So if they're acting on impulse with no understanding of the finality of it and no understanding that they don't get to be around for that everybody showing up and being so sad and supporting them, they don't understand that. And if nobody takes the time to have that conversation with them, they're not going to. And, you know, it's just different problems. If five-year-olds committing suicide does not make you sick to your stomach, then you just have no soul. I mean, just hearing hearing you say that literally rips, because I have a five-year-old daughter. And it's terrifying, it's right? It's terrifying. Like, it's terrifying in the sense that, I mean, I could think of a billion things in life I would like to have never had to have gone through, that I would not like to have any unique insight or knowledge of. My wife and I, we lost a son at 32 weeks gestation. I wish I didn't know what that felt like. I wish that I wasn't part of that secret club where nobody talks about it because it's too heartbreaking to talk about and it makes too many people uncomfortable. But we have the same perception of suicide and we have these warped perspectives of the cluster theory and the contagion theory and we don't understand them. And people take them again at face value. People hear contagion theory. Well, we talk about suicide, people are going to do it. No, no. If a suicide happens and there happens to be a vulnerable person nearby, they're going to be severely affected by that act. So instead of, hush, don't talk about it, we need to hide from this and hide it and put it away. No, we need to inundate anybody who might have been affected by it with support and make sure that they have a place to turn. Because now is when they're going to be in an increased state of crisis. The emotional changes that Daniel experienced changed his whole outlook on life. He had difficulty sleeping, and he had lost weight. His depression was physically and emotionally painful. He began drinking to deal with his emotional pain. Soon, he began to isolate himself, not showing up to meet his friends or calling us last minute to say he had to work on a group project. Sorry, Mom, I'll help you home next week. He felt that he'd become a burden to the very people that loved him the most, and he began to blame himself for everything that was going wrong in his life. Daniel felt the sharp edge of stigma and was unable to share his pain or feel our love. That is why we need to talk about suicide prevention. There's also like this kind of mentality to really push that narrative on other people. So then you end up with fear-based kind of lack of education. And I mean, it's shocking. Like I have documentation of mental health strategies and suicide protocols for schools that I read through, and it's just absolutely terrifying. And then you go into those schools and you ask the teachers and the people in the school whether or not they're aware of the protocol, and none of them have ever heard of it. And why do you think suicide rates are accelerating for girls faster than boys? You know what? I have two boys, and I remember when everybody was asking me, you know, when my wife was pregnant, are you having a boy or a girl? And we never found out. And they asked if I had a preference, and I just religiously said boys. And I said that because having been in this work now, I watch how many influences there are that are directed to girls still. And I look at how they judge themselves. And I look at, you know, six-year-olds checking themselves out in mirrors and making comments about being too fat. All of these behaviors that they're learning, and no matter how much we try to protect them from, that's the world we live in. We have this epitome of perfection. We have this epitome of what a girl is supposed to be. And there's so many double standards against women. And I feel like because they see that now and they have that information now, now we're increasing it. I mean, it used to be that there was this kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, subservient role that women played. And now there's this whole movement towards, you know, empowering girls and empowering women. And I feel like because of the means of social media and because of the way people are conveying that, you know, they're internalizing it and nobody's discussing it with them. I don't like to call people out, but sorry, not sorry, parents, you need to parent. You need to be present. You can't put an iPad or a phone into your kid's hand and allow them unlimited access to this and not monitor it and not discuss it and not educate them and not teach them. Unfortunately, I think that parents are very busy trying to make ends meet. And it's that's also part of the problem. Yeah. But there's the piece that when you're present, you need to be present. Yeah. And I think that we've fallen into allowing that to sometimes buy us time to ourselves. 
And, you know, it used to be that kids would go out and play or you'd go play with your friends or you'd run around or you were creative and you you didn't need constant stimulation because you you kind of fostered this sense of creativity and could self-play. And instead now, you know, kids are reaching for iPads and iPhones and, and watching TV at a rate that just wasn't available to us. As a mom, actor, designer, author, activist, and business owner, (laughs) I know what it's like to be busy and just how distracting uncomfortable clothes can be. And that's why I love Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants. These pants look great anywhere I go, and they are so comfortable. Seriously, I look professional enough for any meeting I need to go to, but feel like I'm in my PJs. It's the best of both worlds. Whatever your style, Beta Brand has the pants to match. Choose from dozens of colors, patterns, cuts, and styles like boot cut, straight leg, skinny, cropped, and more. They even have a pair with eight, yes, eight, pockets. (laughs) And now they also offer premium denim with the same flexibility and comfort as yoga pants. Right now, our listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to Beta Brand dot com slash Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A. That is 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash Alyssa. Millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable pants that you'll ever wear. Go to betabrand.com slash Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A for 20% off. I also think that little girls have a quicker understanding of social status. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm raising a girl and a boy, and I look at my Bella, yeah. and she's five, and the things she talks about in her class are very different than what, you know, Milo talks or talked about at five years old. Bella talks a lot about the talent show and play dates and things that are, mm-hmm. are a lot more social social almost, but also in a way that concerns me because there's certain things that are important to her that I don't quite understand. Like That are more popularity-based or... Yeah, Yeah, like makeup. I'm in a onesie with zero makeup on 98% of my life. (laughs) Whereas Milo, I feel like a lot of his day is very straightforward. Running, jumping, eating. Mm Mm-hmm. Sleeping. More physical. More, more physical. More yeah. And, and practical. And I, yeah. And I think that also the things that we do with our girls that are physical, they're kind of isolationist, right? Like dance and gymnastics. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's all the spotlight is on that one girl. And a lot of it is about body image and how they Yeah, I was going to say, and the whole culture itself is based on body image and it's based on appearances right. and it's based on presentation instead right. of physical ability. Right. Whereas you see the girls that are teenagers that have played team sports their entire childhood. And I think that they get a very different perspective of what strength is, what beauty is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a female athlete, I couldn't agree more. I have some nieces who are in dance and I watch them compete and it's, you know, on one side, it's great. They love it. It's, It's something they participate in with pride. But at the same time, you watch it and you watch the culture around it and you watch the, you know, they're expected to have 10 different outfits and the outfits all have to be brand names and they have to come across with presentation and they have to have their makeup done for every dance and their hair done differently for every dance and everything is judged on that. And I can't help but think that it's got to take a toll. It's got to have an impact and influence on how we determine our own self-worth. And I don't know that it's a positive one. So... How do we combat this? (laughs) We stop putting so much emphasis and value on appearances. And unfortunately, how do we change that? My goodness, that's that's an entire societal flip that is just going to take commitment and a lot of work because everything right now, and especially from, you know, a money standpoint which matters as much as we don't want it to matter, as much as we don't want the value of it to be what causes and drives the production. I mean, I was flipping through Facebook yesterday and somebody 
had posted an ad for some cute Valentine's Day underwear. And they were just gimmicky heart underwear. And it was a very average woman's body and a very average man's body. And every comment under it was, why would I ever buy these? These guys are appalling and atrocious. And and I assure you that 99.9% of the people who left those comments, if you look in the mirror, I mean, you're not looking at anything different. But, you know, we have this pinnacle of what we deem to be beautiful and what we deem to be worthy of value. And you look at social media influencers, you look at the products and stuff that they're supporting. You know, every child's dream now is to come up with that video that goes viral or come up with that statement that goes viral. And it's all driven by appearances. It's all driven by image. And I just feel like we don't get away from it ever. We never have a break from it. And especially young girls now. And arguably a lot with young boys as well now. It's geared towards making them consumers very young because it can be. Because everybody knows they can reach them now through social media and through the internet. And they're doing it. And it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying to me. Do you think that we should maybe regulate social media? I mean, everyone said or has said we can't regulate, you know, freedom of speech, blah, blah, blah. But TV is pretty much regulated. Films are rated, right? You have Mm -hmm. general Mm -hmm. admission, PG, PG PG-13. Do you think we need to move toward that for, you know, internet and social media? You know, it's funny because when I first started kind of understanding more about the influence social media was having on mental health and when I started understanding better you know, just the biology of screen time and that effect on the brain. Right away, it was, I kind of jumped on that, my goodness, we need to shield people from this. We need to get away from it. People need to be way more diligent in monitoring this and everything else. And unfortunately, I mean, I don't think that's a fight we can fight anymore. I don't think that we can expect any type of exclusion because it's just not going to happen. It's too convenient. It's too accessible. You hear about somebody who takes away, you know, their kids' access. Well, then they're going to go over to their friend's house and they're going to have access there. You know, it's just, it's everywhere. Right. And I think that I've evolved into a place where I'm really trying to determine where's the middle ground? Where can we exist where we understand kids are going to access this information But we as adults and as parents need to then kind of disseminate what information they're seeing and at least be there to support them through that journey. And I think that's kind of where I've come back to. It's, you know, again, coming back to TV shows that are are geared towards tough issues or movies that are geared towards tough issues. Your kids are going to find a way to watch it. Make sure you watch it with them then. Or make sure you watch it too. So you know every single thing that was in that show and every single thing that was in that movie. And you're prepared to speak to it. And you're prepared to have those conversations. If you are going to allow your kids to have social media accounts, you monitor them. We can't just be our kids' friends. We have to be that governance. And I hate the word, but we are the ones who have to set the limitations. We're the ones that have to set the parameters because they don't have the ability to. The amount of time that little kids spend with small screens has skyrocketed in the last five years. As an education reporter and a mom, I wanted to know how much screen time is too much. I talked to dozens of experts and surveyed over 500 families and came up with three simple rules. And yes, they're inspired by food writer Michael Pollan. Enjoy screens. Not too much. Mostly together. We're not going to protect them from everything, and I don't think that's our job, but we're certainly in a better position than to say, look, you know, I happen to notice that, you know, your friend posted something about this, and I wondered if you knew what that meant, or I wondered if you could explain it to me, or how did it make you feel? And I think that we've gotten to this place where we don't don't like those uncomfortable conversations. We don't want to have them. It's... It's uncomfortable. My three-year-old, when we lost our other son, you know, he understood it way better than I ever thought a two-year-old would have. And the conversations he's had with me since then, you are absolutely right that there are days that I don't want to have those conversations. There are days that I don't want my three-year-old to be able to dictate when I have to revisit the grief of losing my son. But I've learned very quickly the importance of allowing him to have that grief process as well. 
And so that means on the days that I really don't want to think about it, I don't have that freedom anymore. I have the responsibility as a parent to say, you know what? Yeah, it's sad. And I wish he could be here too. And I wish he was going to come to your birthday party. Hmm. Um, And it's, you know, it's those types of conversations that we tend to try to make better. We tend to try to take care of for them. And I think that part of it is driven by wanting to avoid it ourselves. That's somewhere we're really going wrong. The avoidance is a big issue. Something happened about four months ago. I get this phone call, and I knew that Milo, who's my eight-year-old boy, was at a birthday party. And Mm -hmm. my phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was Milo. And he said, Mom, the kids here are playing Fortnite. And I did not allow him to play Fortnite up until this point. He's like, and I wanted to just call and see if I could play. And just the fact that he called and asked this question, I said, yes, you absolutely can. But when you get home, you, your dad and I are going to sit and we're going to watch you play Fortnite and we're going to talk about it. And my husband still to this day will, I mean, I think he likes it too, but (laughs) Lila's not off in a room by himself playing Fortnite. He is either with my husband or yeah. it's on a play date and things can be discussed like, you know what, we're exactly. not going to call this killing. This is going to be, you know, a takedown. I want you to be very thoughtful yeah. about the words that you choose to use away from this yeah. game, like, you know, yeah. dead and die and kill and yeah. all of that. It's a very yeah. it's a responsibility to play this game. And it would have been much easier for me to just say, you know what, nope. His friends were playing it. Everyone around him was playing it. And I just felt like better than him being overly curious that he is not absorbing the things that he needs to absorb from that responsibility. It's hard because it's much easier to just give the kid the lollipop, right? For sure. For sure, always. And and that's the challenge. I mean, I have a three-year-old and a nine-month-old, and really there's no valid reason for either of them to have screen time at this time. There's just, right. you know what? My kids don't get screen time, and I'll share a story with you that is just, it shocks me. And this isn't a pat on my back. It's just for factual reasons. My son had a cavity, so I guess that's on me. And he had to get the cavity filled. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking, how are you going to fill a three-year-old's cavity? I mean, right. are we going to have to drug him? What are we going to have to do here? Because that can't be a nice process. And I'm picturing a needle going in his mouth. And I'm one of those people who the dentist is, you know, one of the most anxiety inducing things I can endure in my day. So I'm sitting there and we're talking to the dentist and we're kind of making the plan on how this is going to work. And she's like, you know, well, we can give him a medication. It's kind of like the child version of Ativan or we can. And I'm not somebody who I don't want to medicate my child if I don't have to. But again, I want to do this responsibly, so it's not the most traumatizing experience for him. And the dentist stops and says, oh, I just remembered, you guys don't let him watch TV, do you? And we said, no, we don't. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't get any screen time. And she said, that's perfect. Would you be willing to let me put on an episode of Paw Patrol? And I was like, okay, you know, here, explain. And she said, it has the same effect. She said, you know, it's creating mm-hmm. the same effect on the dopamine mm-hmm. receptors for him to just sit there and watch a TV show. And if he doesn't have exposure to it, it'll work the same way as me giving him an Ativan. And I'm sitting there thinking there's zero possibility this is true. But if you're telling me my option is Paw Patrol or Ativan for my three-year-old, I'm choosing the lesser of two perceived evils right, and we're right. going to throw in an episode of Paw Patrol. Right. And no word of a lie. He sat there watching Paw Patrol and didn't move. And it was shocking. I just sat there thinking that it's such a relevant experience to go through because it gives you that moment of really understanding the effect on a child's brain. Right. And then, yeah, you know, as they get older, you are faced with the all of their friends are doing it. You are faced with the it's everywhere. And exactly to my point, that's why to me it's so important that we participate. It's so important to me that we include ourselves in that discussion and are there to have those conversations, like you said with Milo, where it's, yes, you can do it. I don't love it. I don't love that that's what you're going to be doing, but I understand why I have to say yes to letting you do it. 
And instead, we are then going to put a support system together to help you manage whatever may come from that. Exactly. And I think that that's what's missing everywhere when it comes to youth and child and and adolescent exposure to all of these different medias is that we can't stop you from doing it. And I guess it kind of goes back to that age old, I'll be honest, if I were a parent and my child was 15 years old and wanted to have a beer at my house, hypothetically speaking, I'd rather him have a beer at my house so I know he's safe and he's not out doing something he shouldn't be doing than him sneaking out and going drinking with his friends and feeling like he has to lie about it. Because then I can't manage anything that comes of that. And to me, this is no different. To me, it's a matter of we know they're facing it. We know they're being exposed to it. We know what they're seeing. We hear the horror stories. And I'm here to tell you the horror stories are real and far worse. Just weeks after a family ski vacation. Give a smile. This 17-year-old high school junior, straight-A student, class officer, and robotics whiz made her bed, tidied her room, and walked to a highway overpass in Grafton, Massachusetts. I leaned over the embankment and looked down and I saw her. Dean Valores, Alexandra's father. I was just hoping for warmth. Do you know what I mean? But there was no warmth. It was done. Then all the cars kept driving by. My daughter's on the side of the road. Nobody saw this. And she's cold. It used to be we, you know, we went to school and we were at school all day and we left school at 3.30 and that was it. End. Anything that was happening in your social life as a child, it stopped at 3.30 unless you had a, you know, an engagement that night or a play date that night right. or plans that night. It doesn't well, you stop mentioned, anymore. Well, you mentioned school. I, I'm wondering, what what do you think the role is for schools? Because we send our kids to these institutions for a big portion of the time that they're awake. And so sometimes we're not even there to see what's happening, to see those social dynamics. Do schools have a place here? Do you feel that they're equipped to handle this? That was a multiple kind of level question. Do they have a responsibility to be involved in this? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah, because I mean, it's, it's really not what they were built to do, right? But as things have evolved, I do feel like it is time for the school to also step up. I don't expect a school to ever be the solution. I don't expect a school to ever be, you know, the treatment plan, and it's never going to be the crisis support. But first off, as a teacher, if you sign up to be a teacher, you know, you're signing up to being a primary individual in a child's life during a very relevant developmental period in their life. And I feel as though by accepting that responsibility, although you are technically signing up to teach curriculum, you are also signing up to deal with people. And people have complex emotions that they don't understand. And I think that we make the solution so complex because when we think about mental illness and when we think about mental health, When we think about treatment, we automatically go through psychiatry, psychology, medication. We think of the acute. And instead, we get away from the simplicity of actually listening when you ask somebody how they're doing, being present when somebody isn't doing well. And these small things, these small gestures go a long way. And it matters to just show up. It matters. At school, especially, you know, when you're in high school and middle school, people are going to say things like, oh, she's so dramatic. Oh, she's overreacting. She's so selfish. And it's just not the truth. I was super scared to just have my family know that I was dealing with something because they just act like we don't have any problems. And everyone is just mentally a-okay, but it's not the truth. And you look at the school system, and I mean, sports teams at school, that might be somebody's best outlet. The social setup at school might be somebody's only social life. And all of these things become such relative tools to kids when they're at school and in their lives. And these are the the places where they're faced with so many of their, their first experiences, you know, first love, their first crush, their first 
We downplay all these things. You know, you hear things like puppy love. It's insulting to me when I hear that, because if you think about a child, how just absolutely raw their emotions are. Imagine having that raw, complex emotion of love or of lust or of, you know, that depth of kind of feeling existing. And all of the adults around you are just kind of pointing, going, oh, that's so cute. And we hear of so many suicides in youth following breakups. And it's, well, you don't get involved with this. Don't get involved with that. Or it shouldn't have that much importance in your life. But it does. And we try to downplay it. And I think that when you look at schools, they're the first ones that are going to see all of this. And I think that there's a responsibility to participate and make sure that parents are informed as well. Because a lot of times kids are going to go home after a day and they're never going to know what happens at their kid's school. You see it everywhere. You see it in real life. You see it in the TV shows. You see it in the movies. What'd you do at school today? Nothing. What'd you learn at school today? Nothing. Right. Well, a lot of people are willing to accept nothing as an answer. And I think that there's got to be a place where there's kind of a, a transfer of information. But beyond that, the opportunity to create just kind of those supports and those outlets within schools, the infrastructure already exists. And we try to kind of recreate the wheel instead of building off existing communities. And to me, community is everything. Connection is inherently what people crave the most. And isolation is ultimately when suicide happens. People don't kill themselves when they're not alone. It's just factual. It was hard to really tell anyone what was going on when I started to really, you know, get to my lowest, deepest, darkest point in my life. I think my mom was definitely a person who I could talk to about certain things. But for the most part, I think that I just felt alone. And quite simply, offering to be there for somebody instead of sending them a sad face and a hug emoji... Mm. it's the world of difference, but that's just where our culture's gone. We've gotten away from giving our friends a hug instead of sending an emoji. I mean, I feel rude if I pick up the phone and I call my friend without sending them a text first saying, can I call you? Right. And when I grew up, I'd cross the street, knock on my friend's door and say, hey, what are you doing? I mean, could you imagine what it would be like to show up at somebody's house unannounced now and just knock on the door? Right. You'd be crucified. We've lost connection and we think we're so much better connected now. And, you know, to me, schools are kind of that primary hub for kids from five years old until post-secondary school if people choose that. But if not, even the end of high school, that's a lot of key development years that we could be teaching and educating and providing information. We teach so many things that will never affect some kids, and we're not taking the opportunity to teach things that are affecting everybody. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Tell me about your organization, Mentally Fit. So Mentally Fit is very much born out of passion and heartbreak. Unfortunately, where I grew up, Kincardine, Ontario, and, and the surrounding counties, we have a really high suicide rate. And I want to say that that's anomaly or that's specific to that area. But in reality, I'm just aware of it because I know so many people in the area, and it's no different anywhere right now. Suicide rates are not good and continuing to exist on a level that, to me, is crisis. So one day I just kind of was trying to think of how I could help. And I was driving home and this wasn't my most proud moment, but at, I think I was 35, I definitely ran out of gas on my drive home, which is really responsible of me, I know. And I ran out of gas about five minutes outside of a small town up where I'm from. And I sat there thinking, I've been in Toronto so long now that 
I was sitting there thinking, I don't even know how this works now. Like, I, I'm pretty sure we don't have CAA or for you guys, AAA anywhere near here. And I don't know where the closest tow truck is. And I don't know what to do. And I don't want to sit here for an hour waiting for a tow truck. I was on my way to a speaking event. And I thought, what am I going to do? And so I thought, you know what, let's try something different. And at that point, I had, you know, a, enough people on Facebook following my journey that I thought, see if anybody's around. And I just posted on Facebook and I basically said, you know, is there anybody who is close to, and I gave my location and asked that has 15 minutes to spare right now. I need a hand and you could really be my hero. Didn't tell them what the problem was. I could have been suicidal for all they knew. And given the the conversation topic that often happens on my page, they had no clue why I was calling. Within 20 minutes, I had somebody who had driven to me with a can of gas filled my tank. I had another 15 offers to do so. Wow. And I sat there thinking, look how simple that was. If we lived in a safe enough world for somebody to just say, I'm not okay in this moment and I just need a little help. Look how quickly 15 or 20 people made it possible to free up even moments in their day to change the narrative of my whole day. And from that, the Mentally Fit Community Action Plan was born. So it's a four-tier program that we put into rural communities. The first piece of it is all based on assist training, which is really the only interactive suicide crisis training that exists right now in a tool form. It's important for communities to establish their own suicide prevention action plans and build suicide safer communities. Assist training is a fundamental part of such efforts. So we found funding to create assist trainers within our area and started offering assist training to first responders, hospital, ER, doctor, staff, corporate, teachers, with the goal of making sure that we had as many people in the community as we could in places of infrastructure that would, on a daily basis, be interacting with people who could end up in crisis. From that, we then created the sticker program, which is essentially the same concept as block parenting. Did you guys have block parenting in the States? I don't think so. Is this a Canadian thing? Okay. So you, you, this is one of those things that I'm sure I'm going to get laughed at for. But block parenting in Canada is essentially based on you put a sticker in your window at home. And if somebody's ever in trouble, they can come knock on your door. So we use the same concept responsibly, and we initiated the program for businesses. So it has to be a public business where there's more than one person and it can't be a residence. And essentially, they put a mentally fit sticker on the door, and that sticker signifies that that's a safe space. If you're in crisis, if you are having you know negative thoughts, self-harm thoughts, suicidal thoughts, and you feel like you need help and you're not feeling put together enough to ask for help, you show up to any one of those places that has a sticker on the door, you walk in and mention the sticker, and what happens from there is you will not be left alone. You will be brought into a safe space in that business while they contact 911 and initiate a response on your behalf. That's brilliant. And then we created a program called the Resource Program, and it's based on the fact that we look at the wait times for mental health services and they're phenomenal. And it's tragic. It's heartbreaking. But we still spend so much money at the government level on crisis response that we're nowhere near touching on prevention and education and kind of community resources. And through my own story, I've learned and through statistics and everything else, you're looking at like a 12% acute cases of mental illness that really need that acute kind of psychiatric interaction. Otherwise, and not to downplay, you're looking at a majority of anxiety and depression. And that's not to say those individuals don't need psychiatric help or they don't need psychological help. But I can't just put a psychiatrist in every town. I can't slash the wait list. I can't build a hospital. I don't have that kind of money. But what I can do is help teach and educate parents and teachers and students and corporate and individuals, all of the things that help you to manage good mental health outside of those things. So the effect of physical activity, the effects of nutrition, the effects of getting good sleep, the effects of talk therapy, yoga, mindfulness, deep breathing, gardening, nature, being outside, being social. And so what we did was we started to engage local businesses. And essentially our ask of them was donate one hour of your time or service a month for Mentally Fit. And their responsibility in doing so is... That one hour a month is to be dedicated to something that is supportive of mental health. So if you own a gym, 
I want you to put on a one-hour boot camp that is cardiovascular-based because there's a science behind how to cardiovascular health improves mental health. If you're a nutritionist, I want you to give a one-hour talk on how wheat has a direct correlation on mood disorders. If you're a yoga instructor, I want you to do a one-hour class focusing on deep breathing techniques and calming your breathing. Wow. And what we found was all of a sudden, if you even look at a small town that's got 30 businesses in it, if you could get 30 businesses that are already covering their own overhead and already covering their own costs, and you're not doing anything other than offering them a business you know, tool in terms of marketing and drawing potential new clientele to their business from a business standpoint, they are essentially creating an infrastructure of mental health support in rural communities. And so we're now able to suggest to individuals that they can go out and learn and they can do that thing where when they're feeling good, they can learn those tools. And when they're not feeling good, now their second nature might be to go access one of these resources instead of feel as though they're in crisis. And so it doesn't eliminate the problem, but it starts bridging that gap from the ground up instead of waiting for help from the top. No, and it also creates a sense of community around it. Exactly. Which is And so, that's the difference because so now vital. you've created almost a full circle in terms of support. And then the last piece that we're trying to implement right now is the hospital program. And it's based on the triage process for ER is very much based on physical health and needs to be. You know, I'm a first responder and I understand the relevance of whomever is closest to death is going to be seen first, period. It's the whole purpose of the emergency room. But that doesn't mean that there can't be a facet of it that is more supportive for people who are coming in in mental health crisis, especially given the volume of calls that are that. And so what we're doing in rural hospitals where they participate is creating a mentally fit room in those hospitals. And essentially, it's just a different waiting room. And it changes the experience for somebody who's there with anxiety, depression, because that room is full of tools and quote unquote distractions that are good for mental health. Adult coloring books, headphones for deep breathing exercises, verbiage and information around all of the different facets of mental illness, mental health, resources, coping tools, different things you could be accessing, right down to a shelf full of essential oils, if that's something that you're into. And it gives people an experience of feeling supported. Because ultimately, if you go into the emergency room having a panic attack, you're not the top of their list, but it doesn't make your emergency any less real. Right. How can we start to de-escalate that for somebody before they spend six hours escalating in a waiting room because it's the worst possible environment for somebody yeah. who's having a panic attack? And it really changes that experience. But then the follow-up is having local community mental health resources following up with individuals who report to the emergency room based on a mental health crisis. Hospitals and government like it because you're reducing repeat visits for non-emergent, quote-unquote, care. Yep. But you're also allowing these individuals to start learning what's available in a system that's really hard to navigate. So hopefully then we can start to put those things in place and help create supportive teams around those individuals within the communities they're in to change that experience for them. And ultimately what that looks like is you walk into a business and mention that you see the sticker, they're going to call 911. 911's going to respond with a paramedic and a firefighter who have been trained in assist training because we focused on training first responders. So they're people who know how to have communication with people in crisis. They're going to be transported to a rural hospital that actually has a space that is safe for them to be in. And ultimately, they're going to learn about all of the resources in the community that are offering free service for them to learn new coping strategies. So we've tried to create a full cycle program. Amazing. God <laughs> bless you. Well, we're trying. It's tough because to be honest, it's my wife and I running it while I'm full-time firefighter and a professional speaker as well. But it works and it works so well. And it's something I'm so passionate about that we're going to get there. Let me ask you this. When you yes. were personally at your lowest, is there something that you wish somebody had known to say to you or to tell you? To me, it comes back to the being present. To me, it comes back to knowing the onus wasn't on me 
to explain myself because I found that that was always the most challenging. I can't count the number of days that I was sitting and at the time I was in a condo in Toronto and the CN Tower was right outside my window. And I just used to sit there staring at the CN Tower and that was my gauge for life. That was just, if I could see the CN Tower when the sun was rising, I knew I survived. The nights were always the worst. And it was such a lonely feeling. And it was such a place of just constant dread because why would anybody want to exist like that? And yet at the same time, it wasn't that I ever wanted to die. It was that I just couldn't picture living anymore. I I just physically got to a place where I couldn't see tomorrow anymore. And to me at that time, I wish people knew that if I asked them to be there with me, if I asked them to be there for me, I wasn't looking for them to fix it. I wasn't looking for them to say the right thing. There was no onus on them to be an expert. I just needed to feel safe for a minute. And I think that that's what's so important and something that I want everybody to understand is that every single one of us has the ability to be that. Suicide sucks. And it's really hard to talk about. Extremely hard. I think the reason that it's so hard for me specifically to talk about is because it's always going to be really real for me. On October 1st of 2015, I tried to kill myself. Since then, I still think about it every day, whether that be in the context of being ashamed of it or maybe walking myself through it again to see how I could help someone who's walking through it right now, or maybe even just wishing I would have died that night. It's always going to be a part of my story. While I was writing this talk, I actually almost lost a good friend to suicide. So yeah, suicide is really real for me in a lot of aspects. And it's so hard to stand up here and to talk about it because talking about it makes it even more real. And I wish with my whole heart that it didn't have to be so real. I wish that if I just didn't talk about it, it would go away. But as they say, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So I have to stop thinking it will go away. I have to stop begging for lives to be saved only within the four walls of my mind. I have to stop believing that silence is the answer when 44,000 people are still dying by suicide each year. I have to talk about it. We, we have to talk about it. Every single one of us can be that person who just fills a room that feels way too empty for somebody. And... You know, we're so quick to say there's not enough resources, there's not enough psychologists, there's not enough, you need to go get help. You know, and we we forget how large of a role we can play for each other. Because sometimes it's just remembering you're not alone. Sometimes it is just physically knowing that somebody else is going to sit there and make sure that the sun rises again with you. Mm. And I think that we have such an ability to make everything so complex. And if we could just get back to the basics of caring for one another and being present for one another and understanding that we can't always understand. And please don't ask me to make you understand. All I'm asking for is you to be here. And I think that that's, for me, ultimately, I was fortunate enough that I, you know, I've, I've found that team for myself. I've found that support circle now, but in those days, in those moments, you know, I spent as much time fighting to validate what I was going through and to convince others that it was real as I did just trying to survive. And that was so much energy wasted. Well, Kendra, in sharing your story, you've made me feel less alone. So thank you so much. Thank you for being a part of the podcast and for having this talk with me. My family has always had a very romantic relationship with suicide. She's a silent siren singing lithium to the rhythm of my bleeding heart and begging me to dance with her. She's always dancing. For me, suicide has always been the girl next door that comes in my bedroom at night when it's dark, when all my light bulbs are burnt out, when I am burnt out, trapped in the labyrinth of my own anxiety, trying to find new ways to love myself, looking for new ways to love myself. I looked in my closet and just found my ex-girlfriend's head off. I looked in my wallet. I don't know why. Ain't shit going on in there. Then I looked under my mattress and smelled all of my favorite bad decisions. 
And then I picked the scabs off of my trust, followed my roadmap scars, and there she was. Sitting on the hyphen between give and up with a jar full of fireflies, showing me the light to the end of my manic suicide is thoughtful. I love the way she massages the knives in my back. I love the way she kisses me, swallows my indecision whole, and picks her teeth with my ribcage. Suicide is sweet. I love the way she plays my hair like a toss strings when I feel like an off-tune hymn. And one day she told me that I was born a two-way mirror. I, I show people that can't see themselves that I'm always falling when I let women play jingle with my emotions, when I carry my body like a pallbearer, when I trip over my own shadow, the dismantled spirit coughs out this coffin, I have a mouth, and suicide, she catches me. When I'm at my lowest point, I almost cut my wrist on a broken promise. My rock bottom is paved with them, and suicide, oh, she holds me like a safety net turns my self-loathing into a linoleum floor and begs me to dance with her. She's always dancing. I sucked the Vicodin off of her lips one day. Her mouth tasted like my mother's favorite cup. She had my cousin's bathwater in her hair, and she smiled at me with my uncle's eyes. My family has always had a very romantic relationship with suicide. She's a silent siren singing lithium to the rhythm of my bleeding heart and begging me to dance with her. She's always dancing. Thank God for my two left feet. Well, social media is a shithole. Seriously, the dumpster fire of trolls, cowards, and broken individuals dedicated to cruelty and hate and shaming show us the worst of who we are. And as we've just heard, the consequences of their action can be devastating. I know some of you listening are my trolls. Hello. I know some of you are going to use what's in this episode to try and hurt people. I can't stop you. Apparently, you just have no decency or humanity left. You think it's funny. It's not. So I'm not talking to you, but I am talking to those of you who are troll adjacent. To those of you who know people who behave this way. Maybe it's your sibling or your colleague or your child even. You have the responsibility to act. You have the responsibility to get them away from their keyboards. They are the train coming down the tracks, and somewhere there is a young woman, a girl with her foot stuck in the rail. What are you going to do about it? Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and... Milo Bugliari, that's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and 